Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 9. Theatre of Minds. On Dramaturgic Awareness. Even Shakespeare knew it. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. In these verses there lies a profound truth, which is even of great importance to psychoanalysis, which is what this episode will deal with. The reality is that every single one of us, every day of the week, takes part in a stage play. Short scenes in which we switch into completely different roles. And even if we maintain some core identity, all the same. As a husband, I behave differently towards my wife than I would as an employee towards my female boss. This role-playing is given particularly clear expression in the way we dress. For work, we select a spiffy suit, while at home we unwind in jogging pants. And hardly anyone living in Western society would think to show up to a funeral in a bright red sweater. We are always conveying something, even if that is not wanting to convey anything. He or she who expresses something is sending a message more or less directly to someone else. The way in which we present ourselves to others determines the specific relationship we form with our shared world, inconspicuous, inviting or repellent. Or who would you rather sit next to alone on a park bench at night? Marilyn Manson? or Marilyn Monroe. Other people react automatically to that part of ourselves that we reveal to them, and even that quick glance in the mirror before we leave the house simulates the gaze of the other. What do I look like? Meaning, how do others see me? This is perhaps not something that is so apparent in everyday life, but is perhaps clearer the moment someone deviates from the expected norm, in a negative or a positive sense. Clothing and a particular sense of dress are, at the end of the day, relatively conscious decisions, and even those who aren't fashion experts will find their choice of clothing provided for by social conventions. How we behave or act in a certain situation involves not only conscious, but also always unconscious components. And in fact, that makes up the essential part of how we come across. Among the ways in which we relate ourselves to others, there are indeed plenty of aspects that are in part difficult to control. How we speak, how we act, how we move how we perceive, and so forth. Comedians and good actors manage to uncover these traits of a person and to make them visible through exaggeration. 
We are then suddenly confronted with something that we know all too well, and yet, at the same time, has never really occurred to us consciously. This surprises us, and we cannot help but laugh. But let us come back to that play we call life. And by play, we don't only mean those extravagant frauds or hustlers, or those who want to deceive or fool us. Instead, what is meant is an everyday mode of movement in social space that concerns all of us. And one man in his time plays many parts. And the fact that this basically proceeds automatically, meaning unconsciously, on a daily basis, is, as a rule, helpful and makes our lives easier. If I always had to deliberate consciously on whether I should at that moment take on the role of a salesperson or that of a mother, with all the implications that this would involve for me, then there surely wouldn't remain very much left of my day. Our unconscious allows us to oscillate instinctually between different roles, say, like when we suddenly adopt a different voice when on the phone. Woven into this fine mesh of interactions are social conventions, but also our own history, our relationship experiences, expectations, our wishes and fantasies. In short, our entire conscious and unconscious psychic life. When our voice trembles as we negotiate our salary with the boss, it is a part of our relationship experiences that is inscribing into that trembling. In this case, for example, the experience that it's best not to further burden the already overloaded father with one's own demands. Someone with different relationship experiences would, by contrast, perhaps put on a completely different performance. Such processes arise in our daily relationships, but indeed also within therapy, in which the relationship between therapist and patient plays a special role. As we have frequently heard in other episodes, the goal of analysis is, among other things, to make unconscious processes conscious. But how to make something visible that is inherently invisible? Psychoanalysts don't only listen to what their patients say to them about their history, their symptoms and their feelings. Psychoanalysts hear and see still more. Following Theodor Reich, one also speaks in psychoanalysis of listening with the third ear. And one could perhaps add seeing with the third eye. For example, an analyst pays special attention to how the patient speaks, such as excited and speaking quickly, as well as when they say something. For example, something particularly important just as the hour draws to an end, or what kind of relationship the patient forms with the therapist say, in search of parental advice, or lecturing like a teacher, or how the therapist relates to the patient. Maybe the therapist must fight against some inner impulse in order not to constantly make exceptions for the patient, or against some inner need 
to persuade the patient of something, or to win the patient over to the therapy, or perhaps against the feelings of anxiety that arises in the therapist, or against a need to overly protect the patient. By attributing a particular meaning to these processes, picking up on the scenes as they repeatedly come up in the here and now of the therapeutic setting, the analyst can learn more about the patient's unconscious dynamics and experiences. This is called scenical understanding. A concept that has been developed most notably by the German psychoanalyst Alfred Lorenzer, as well as Hermann Agelander and Rolf Kluver. In this context, one could also speak of dramaturgic awareness, a special attention and sensitivity to the language of actions. That is, being attentive to what play is being performed when two people meet, how, through their actions, they are communicating with one another, and what meaning is being exchanged in the process. This concerns a complex theoretical discourse that will not be expanded upon at this point. A similar concept has been developed by the British psychoanalyst Betty Joseph with the term total situation. In clinical work, it is the approach that is above all important. The therapist must dedicate a special kind of attention to the fine web of dramaturgical interactions that take place during therapy. That doesn't mean that the therapist obsessively registers and frantically interprets every detail. Instead, this facet of the interaction is attended to with a dreamlike, intuitively sensed awareness. What is revolutionary about the perspective of dramaturgic awareness is that therapists do not only see themselves as objective observers, studying their patients and their problems, as if from behind a pane of glass, but rather as participants in a kind of stage play, in which the patient's unconscious drama is acted out. From objective observer to engaged participant, this paradigm shift entails many important implications one might be particularly surprising to some. If psychoanalysts know that they are involved with the patient in a play, then they must grapple with things as they take place in the present, or, as it is often called among psychoanalysts, in the here and now. They also don't have to peer into the head of the patient with psychological X-ray vision in order to understand what kind of problem lies buried there. They don't need any X-ray vision at all. The problem is, at least when considered from a particular perspective, lying right out there on the surface. The here and now of the therapeutic encounter, as it were, between patient and therapist, and not, say, solely within the patient and their brain. If the issues weren't in any way linked with the patient's current relationships and conflicts, the connections that make up their life, then they probably wouldn't have any problems at all. 
dramaturgic awareness, means looking at these relationship dynamics, understanding them like the scenes in an unintentional play, in which all participants are assigned specific roles. One scene to which analysts ordinarily devote themselves intensely is the opening scene. This is the scene at the beginning of therapy, in which the patient and therapist first meet one another. This moment is particularly revealing. It shows, namely, how the patient initiates the relationship and how they shape this first interaction with another person. Similarly, meaningful is also the closing scene. That is the moment of separation at the end of the hour, the unfastening of ties. But for the moment, we would like to devote ourselves to the opening scene. We'll give an example. A patient rings the doorbell. It is the first meeting between patient and therapist, an initial interview. They greet each other at the door. The patient is in her early 20s. Initially, she comes across as self-confident and somewhat outspoken. The therapist wants to close the door and then to lead her into the consulting room. But at this moment, the patient squeezes by the therapist in the narrow hallway. And although the patient has never been there, it is now she who sort of leads the therapist into the consulting room. On the way there, the patient turns around a couple times, all the while her facial expressions appear more and more tense, then anxious, and finally she looks drained and appears to feel cornered. And the therapist? He feels more and more like a persecutor, hot on the heels of the patient, and, as the distance between them has somehow become far too close, whose boundaries he doesn't respect. This short scene only lasted for a short moment. Next to nothing was spoken, not to mention that the patient still hasn't said anything about her problems and conflicts, about the reason why she seeks therapy, or perhaps she has. Let us try once more to comprehend the situation just depicted dramaturgically. We ask ourselves the question, what could that mean, that which just now took place between patient and therapist? The situation is multi-layered, and multiple possibilities are conceivable. So, for example, the reversal of roles stands out. He who usually takes the lead suddenly becomes he who follows. Perhaps what lies behind this is the question, who has the control? Important in this context, though, is that the therapist sensed he was a persecutor and that the patient appeared uneasily tense, in no way mocking or triumphant. And even before anything had been discussed, the opening scene of this short play has the therapist become the pursuer and the patient the pursued. Even though it is the patient who sought out the therapist in hopes of receiving help from him. 
These are just some examples that can serve the therapist as initial hypotheses, not as judgments. The therapist will keep these intuitions in mind, but will, for the time being, wait and just listen to what the patient has to say, and how these first impressions of this scene could match with what is said. Then, over the course of the session, the patient in our example tells of recurring situations in which she finds herself in threatening settings, where she cannot protect herself and consequentially becomes the victim of acts of violence. But she just cannot explain why this continuously happens to her. If anything, she perceives these situations as strokes of fate beyond her control, crashing down upon her. Given this kind of context, the opening scene can already contain important information. In a peculiar way, the persecutor and the person from whom the patient is actually looking for help are fused with one another. The patient may unconsciously fear that therapist and the rapist are one and the same person. In everyday life, these kinds of encounters could lead to conflicts. In the worst case, even to re-traumatisation if those involved take advantage of the situation or misuse it for their own interests. However this scene is interpreted, it is clear that the patient's problem doesn't lie only within her psychic inner space, that she has anxiety or depression. Rather, the problems constellate directly to the relationship between her and her therapist. This aspect of the problematic, that is, envisioning the relationship dimensions, is of vital importance for the therapeutic work of psychoanalysis. As we heard in episode 2, on transference and counter-transference, the problem doesn't lie in the bygone past, but rather in the here and now of therapeutic space. However, the therapeutic space now exhibits a special feature. To be sure, therapists allow themselves to become entangled in the situation. Yet, at the same time, they attempt, as psychoanalysts would say, to work through it. The term dramaturgic awareness, or scenical understanding, doesn't only point to the narrative aspect of a scene or an act, but also to the importance of understanding. What understanding means in the therapeutic process is to be sure a quite profound question. Understanding can't take place if the therapist merely communicates their interpretation to the patient as a teacher explains something to their pupil. Understanding is a long process which only takes place gradually between patient and therapist. As for what exactly understanding means within psychoanalysis, we will grapple with that in another episode. Incidentally, on this point, it also becomes clear how important the general framework is to the therapeutic setting. It establishes from the onset certain limits to the therapeutic relationship. How far the patient and therapist can and should become intertwined. 
It is, however, important that the therapist does freely and knowingly become entangled in these scenes, participates in the play, for, in the words of German psychoanalyst Helmut Hinz, those who don't get caught up don't play a role. Patients don't reenact such scenes consciously. One could rather characterize such a thing as a kind of creative solution of the unconscious, in this way conveying their own stories, that inner drama, up close to an understanding interlocutor, making their experience and thinking accessible. Protector and caregiver have, along with threatening persecutor, become one and the same person, perhaps a relic out of the patient's history, perhaps their relationship to their parents, which, within the therapeutic setting, is brought to bear in the flesh. What's more, it often isn't initially clear how the therapist is implicated in the play. But therapists are trained to frequently detach themselves mentally from such situations, and, like us listeners, to consider the whole scene once again from a distance. It is precisely this movement, from being involved to evolving, that is central for a successful therapeutic relationship. A misunderstanding should be immediately averted. It is not the fault of the patient that an uncomfortable situation with the analyst arose, as just described, indeed, the therapist could have, in principle, structured the scene in some other way. But no more could the patient have found another way to orchestrate the situation than the therapist could in that moment withdraw himself from it. If there were something like fundamental laws of the unconscious, one of them would surely read, That which we do not yet understand that which cannot yet be spoken or thought, will be expressed in action. The unconscious is always in that place, where we know not what we do. Those who reflect on something thereby gain space for thought, forestalling their actions, giving their consciousness a chance to intervene in perhaps an otherwise impulsive or unconscious course of action. When I become conscious that a specific psychic conflict gets me into threatening situations over and over, then, at best, I provide a space for thought in the future prior to contacting that person to whom some seemingly random mood or impulse has lured me. But why, in fact, must that which is not understood, the unconscious, be expressed in actions, for that, let us take a look at developmental psychology. How do children manage experiences and incidents that preoccupy or burden them, that make them sad or angry, or even those that make them especially happy? It is a long time until children can make themselves understood in a linguistically reflexive way. If, let's say, a close caretaker dies, then, contrary to popular opinion, it will preoccupy small children all too much. After all, 
They don't yet have the ability to say about themselves, I am heartbroken and sad about it. Yet children will recast what moves them emotionally into, among other things, small dramatic storylines, specifically into their play. Using themselves or dolls, they will reconstruct that which lies heavy on their hearts and will quite spontaneously incorporate others into their play, assigning them a specific role. In this way, children try to cope with what they have been through, or, to be more precise, to try and understand it in and through play. It is thus no surprise that child therapists primarily use play to gain access to the child's inner life and to resolve their conflicts with them, such as by taking on the roles the child assigns to them, like to play the evil persecutor, although modified in a creative way. As adults, we have multiple ways to gain access to ourselves and to our experiences. We can speak and think about ourselves, but in a specific dimension of our inner lives, we are always at play. That which we are is not only contained in our explicit knowledge about our histories, but also in how we develop relationships with others. In that play that is forever unfolding between us and others. In this interpretation, our unconscious doesn't lie in some dark cellar hole of our souls, but rather is outside in our actions in the organisation of our relationships, in all the multifarious scenes that our social environment entangles us in, precisely because we have yet to internalise it, yet to make it a part of our thought. It is unconscious to us, or, to put it in the poetic words of Artur Schnitzler, dream and wakefulness, truth and falsehood, all flow into one another. Certainty is nowhere to be found. We know naught of others, naught of ourselves. We are always at play, and wise is he who knows it. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.